The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO at the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us for today's teleconference, where we will discuss PERM, green card, and other issues. Uh, joining me in today's conference call are James McLaughlin, known as Jim McLaughlin, and Jessica Beaver, both seasoned, knowledgeable, sharp, brilliant, and caring attorneys, as all of our team is at the Murthy Law Firm. As usual, I'm acting as the moderator for today's panel. As most of you know, the world of immigration has always been unpredictable and more so today. In the past few years, we have seen the sands shifting in new ways at an alarming pace, resulting in new challenges for employers and foreign national employees that you hire, whom you wish to pursue for these employees, their lawful permanent residence in the United States. So we hope to examine recent developments in the permanent immigration process with respect to employers, the issues that you have to deal with, uh, as well as for your employees. So the general rule is that in order to start the PERM for the green card, the employer has to obtain what's called the PWD or the prevailing wage determination. So Jim, why don't you talk a little bit about the timeframes and how that works in terms of processing for an employer? Okay, sure. Thanks, Sheila. So as I'm sure all our listeners are aware, governmental processing times change. They change all the time. Recently, they've gotten longer on pretty much everything. Um, prevailing wage determinations are no different. Um, we a few maybe even a year ago I think we saw them coming back pretty quickly maybe within about two months one to two months time now we're seeing it's really closer to four to five months um, I believe uh, I checked the ICERT website earlier today and it mentioned 125 days as of March 31st so it's taking an exceptionally long period of time when you're looking at the entire perm process that you have to go through to potentially get a benefit for not only the green card but potentially where it, it affects someone's H-1B time, you want to take this into account when you're looking at when should you start the PERM process. As we always say at the Murthy Law Firm, you want to start off as early as you can, um, but with this, with it taking so long for the prevailing wage of four or five months, if you're waiting to the last year or so to even start the process, you know, so you may want to So this is primarily for H-1Bs who've got used, used up most of their six years and are now panicking? That's where so it's most important, if they don't start right? at least two years earlier before the H-1, because it takes almost close to a year to file, with the prevailing wage itself taking four to five months, exactly. and then you file, take, then you have to prepare it, go through the newspaper, the ads, all of that. Right. And if you don't have a minimum one year, then your employee is not going to be able to file the H-1 extensions in one year increments. And ideally, you want the I-140 approved so you can get three-year H-1 increments to the extent you can get that in this day and age. Right. Uh, because again, you're wasting throwing away hard-earned money 
by filing either annual extensions or with what the USCIS now is doing is giving two, three months or retroactive approvals, which is another whole another story. Right, exactly right. So one of the strategies maybe to, you know, make the case go a little faster would be to run advertisements at the same time the prevailing wage is pending. You know, it is still the best practice to wait until the prevailing wage comes back. You may have a wage that's not acceptable to you, the employer. You just need to keep that in mind because you may have to redo ads if you do run them before. You also have to keep in mind at this time of year between really April 1st and June 30th, as the new prevailing wages come out, they're only going to be valid for 90 days. So you have to make sure, one, that you either, you know, get up an advertisement before the prevailing wage expires, or if you did try to run the ads before the prevailing wage came out, you have to file the labor certification before the prevailing wage expires. Um, just like Sheila was saying, the additional time frames need to be kept in mind. So, you know, where you may have started in the fifth year of somebody's H-1B, it's really good to look at the first, even second year, just so that you can kind of combat these government uh, processing times. Right. If I could just add one more point to that, JB. Um, sorry, Jessica. <laughs> the, um, when you start ads early, keep in mind that the wages change on July 1st every year. So if you're starting ads early and you have some ads that list a wage in there, you definitely want to talk to your attorney before you uh, determine if you're going to pursue this strategy because there could be some major changes that would affect your ability to file at all. Very important and very good points. Thank you. So let's switch from the prevailing wage determination issues and timeframes to the business verification unit sorts of delays. So the Employment and Training Administration, the ETA of the Department of Labor, you know, after you complete the pre-filing recruitment phase for the labor certification process, the regulations and the U.S. Department of Labor's instructions permit you as the employer to file the application for certification, or what we call the PERM, via electronic submission, submission using the Department of Labor's portal at www.plc.doleta.gov. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the website, or you can certainly use the paper submission and file it with the Department of Labor's Perm Processing Center in Atlanta, Georgia. And then the Department of Labor all consistently recommends and directs you all as employers to use the portal to submit the application for certification because obviously it's more efficient, it typically, it typically it's results in a more orderly and sometimes even a speedy consideration of the application and there's less chance that it's lost, misplaced in the mail, all that stuff that you hear about with a paper copy. Right, and it has to be physically inputted by a Department of Labor worker, so there could be Typos, errors. errors and, yeah. um, and even though the Department of Labor has not you know, released this fact, you know, we do sometimes see that you could get a higher audit rate if you paper file just because of the information and how you the DOL uses that. annoyed with you, they come up with reasons to, her, to, right. to put And the blocks. additional delay of just having them have to update the form themselves online. Yeah. What about the account registration, Jim? So uh, probably many of our listeners have been through this before. If you're uh, a newer client of ours listening to this, you want to, on the iCERT system for the Department of Labor, it's, it's pretty simple registration. You go through, you put in your employment data, your contacts, um, and it's not too difficult. Um, but one thing you want to be looking at is, depending on how large your organization is, you want to make sure that your data other than what you're putting in there is reflected correctly on the resources DOL uses to make sure you're a viable business. 
Um, so Dun & Bradstreet is one of the organizations they use. If you're a larger entity, just make sure that information is accurate on there. If you're a smaller entity, maybe even somebody doing a, 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 you know, a domestic worker case, um, you want to make sure that you're registered through the State Department taxation to make sure that when the Department of Labor, after you've registered, they can find you and confirm that data. And really why we're mentioning this is because sometimes these existence checks to kind of verify the business can take a month or more to complete. So you want to register early in the process so you're not waiting till the last minute when your ads are about to expire and you may have to paper file because you haven't gone through the registration process and had the DOL time to give you the, the account information. So really prudent to register as soon as, soon as the process starts. Right, absolutely. If there's an, an issue with that business existence, it may take 60 days to get a response back from DOL. Right, and the government will even issue requests for information, sometimes asking for things like tax returns, leases, et cetera, giving the company 30 days to kind of verify their entity. So the bottom line is you just want to try to do it as soon as possible so that it doesn't delay the case for uh, your foreign national employee. Absolutely. Oh, my God, it's like a lot of little to dot the I's and cross the T, so to, st stay, so to say. Also, you have the account maintenance issue. So obviously maintaining your account with the Department of Labor is highly recommended. The perm portal's password expires every 90 days for you as employers. So resetting the password sometimes can be difficult for technical reasons and the Department of Labor help desk often gets many inquiries and they're consistently slow to respond to such requests to reset the password. So this can also end up causing you delays if you as the employer now need to file an application for the perm while, while the pre-filing recruitment is current. So you need to, now again, if bads are expiring, this is, could just end up wasting time and money overall. And just to give you a real-world example, you know, if you have uh, an employee that was a contact for the company, and let's say they had the passwords or even they were part of the registration of the perm process, you know, trying to get that fixed if they've moved on or, um, you know, they can no longer be in contact is, is really important to kind of maintain your accounts. Okay. So let's look at this new audit trend, which requires evidence of a bona fide job offer and or a bona fide employer, employee relationship, et cetera. Jim? Sure. So, so um, as we all know, or many of our listeners know, labor certification is attestation-based. Um, generally, you file the application online in most instances, and the Department of Labor reviews it basically to make sure it's filled out correctly and there are no errors. But they will issue an audit um, periodically um, if to verify the information on the form is accurate. What we're seeing is a trend where in these audits, they're asking for evidence of the bona fides of the employment, particularly uh, uh, focused on the IT consulting industry um, and asking about even employer-employee uh, relationship uh, type documentation and information similar to what we saw from the 2010 Neufeld memo regarding H-1Bs. Um, so this is uh, you know, kind of a, a frightening trend we've seen um, regarding, uh, you know, these audits, typically they'd be asking for copies of your advertisements and resumes received to make sure that you did bona fide recruitment for the position. Um, in this case, they appear to be focused on 
is this a true offer of employment? And they be, may be asking for um, resumes of the foreign national, they'll be asked for um, payment information, client documentation, and client documentation. Uh, so it's a little frightening. And Jim, I would say that this appears to be in response to the Buy American, Hire American executive order, where the Trump administration, you know, basically directed federal executive agencies like the Department of Labor to take uh, to take additional steps in everyday government operations to protect the U.S. workforce and labor market. So, although these audits are not, you know, widespread as a time at this time, they're being seen in greater numbers in the past. So it's it's important that you're preparing the applications prudently with some of these, you know, changes that are coming up. And similarly, we've been observing an increase in the occurrence of audits from the Department of Labor where they request evidence of you as an employer and your ability to pay the offered or proffered wage as mentioned on the labor certification as determined by the prevailing wage determination, as well as any evidence of the employee or the beneficiaries, the employee's qualifications um, to show that the particular employee is clearly eligible and qualifies for the offered position. Um, Jim? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So in the I in the perm process, when you get stage two of the I-140, the, one of the requirements is the employer shows they have the ability to pay the proffered wage. But what we're seeing in these audits is uh, the Department of Labor, similar to the bona fide, um, bona fide job offer of the Newfeld memo uh, details, we're seeing them also ask for documentation regarding um, the company's ability to pay. Now, it is true that the regulations at, at 20 uh, CFR 656-10C4 do say that the employer needs to be able to pay the salary when the foreign national comes to the United States and they have to have enough funds to pay that. But in practice, until recently, it was extremely rare to see the Department of Labor really ask for documentation regarding this. Um, uh, so it is quite scary right now. Right, and, and so is the increased emphasis on the beneficiary's qualifications. Um, you know, having to list it on NH14 or, or show that their qualifications, special skills, correspond to Section K in the 989 form, asking to show the employee's qualifications at the Department of Labor stage, where we usually see it at the I-140 stages, as absolutely. Jim was mentioning, is now becoming, you know, more of a trend. True, absolutely. You know, we found that this, the, the way to deal with these uh, audits is, Basically, ex give them the legal explanation as to what they're asking for, it's not appropriate, and why, and explain what we are providing and how it meets uh, the requirement to show that recruitment was conducted, bona fide employment. Um, so we do give them generally what they're asking for, but it really needs to be within the confines of what's appropriate for the job, um, and it may not be appropriate to give them everything they're asking for. Okay. So next let's look at this whole sort of Department of Labor which has rolled out additional electronic functionality for the PERM portal and then also to receive the audit and the requests for information responses. So now the PERM portal can be used to submit audit and request for information, not request for evidence because with the Department of Labor I guess it's called RFI responses. So the Department of Labor in liaison and open forum meetings with ALA, the American Immigration Lawyers Association, they have encouraged employers to use the portal for submissions, as we talked earlier, instead of just mailing it or even emailing the responses, as it helps with conducting 
efficient and timely review of their review and responses, and they feel that it helps to move things much faster. Our office has seen that the system still kind of remains somewhat unwieldy. Um, there have been certain browser issues that happen. The Department of Labor won't let you simply upload the audit response. They want each advertisement and each piece uploaded separately so it can become time consuming. So consequently, we have you know, typically still emailed our audit responses and RFI responses until kind of their technical glitches and, you know, user uh, compatibility issues have been um, fixed. Okay. So let's now m- next move to the I-140 or the immigrant petition filed by the employer on behalf of the sponsored employee. The USCIS, as most of you are aware, is continuously issuing RFEs requesting documentation and information to support the employer's ability to pay the offered wage for some or for all of the foreign nationals that you as an employer may have previously filed an I-140 petition for. And some people argue that this is far reaching, but we're starting to see more and more and more of that. We've been seeing this now for the last few years, but I think it's like now they're trying to mirror the H-1. I think Jessica mentioned it earlier, like the H-1 and the green cards are kind of expanding. So what does it mean, Jim, to say ability to pay all the employees? Right. So so as I mentioned earlier, the obligation in I-140, one of them is to show that the company has the ability to pay. Um, if, however, and USS stated a few years ago, if when reviewing an application they see the individual is not earning the wage list on the labor certification, even if it's a different position, then that opens up not only for them to confirm that the company has the ability to pay that one petition, but potentially all other I-140 petitions they file generally within a certain time frame. Um, But it could be expanded out into all I-140s. So an ability to pay everyone really takes that, I say you have 10 I-140s, you need, and each of them is lacking $10,000, you need to show that you have the ability to pay cumulatively that $100,000 on your tax returns for net income or net current assets. And I would just remind, you know, remind our employers that although green cards are for the future, you know, you're not saying that you're going to pay these employees until they get their green card. Unlike H-1B petitions where you're paying them the wage on the LCA, it's important to note that the ability to pay does kick in the date the labor certification is filed and going forward. So that's kind of how the USCIS is using that in asking ability to pay for all petitions, which for some of our employers, this can be very time consuming. Um, if you have a lot of I-140 petitions, the USCIS can limit it to a certain you know period of time they're looking at for petitions that were filed. Um, if employers who have depended on their employees to seek out their own immigration counsel, you may have seven, several different attorneys you're working with, and it may be difficult to identify all of those petitions unless you keep good records. Right. And USCIS is going to ask for the I-140s, the labor certifications, they want to verify all of that data. Okay. So, I mean, the general strategy that we advise people is obviously, uh, what do they say, prevention is cheaper than cure, defense is much uh, less expensive and less uh, time-consuming for you as employers. So, we tend to routinely recommend that as an employer, you should take all steps to start paying the prevailing wage determination slash offered wage per the Department of Labor prior to filing or by the day you're ready to file the labor certification, 
because as we talked about just now, you have to meet it from the date the priority date is established or the date the labor certification is filed with the Department of Labor. And that strategy Sheila was talking about really helps employers not have to rely on their tax return year to year, where the government doesn't just look at gross, they look at certain things, net income and net current assets. So while it may be a, you know, more uh, conservative strategy, it ultimately can help the employer so that they don't have to worry about their taxes showing enough money each year if their employee is being paid the wage. Right. But also, I mean, the other thing that we've talked about is, you know, you want to refrain from filing petitions as an employer for an individual who is not currently working either for you, unless you have so much of a higher salary, because many are like, oh, don't worry, I can file this now and I can pay it later. No. You have to show that you can pay it from today, from the day the labor certification is filed. And most employer attorneys tend to suggest or recommend withdrawing the I-140 petitions for those employees who have moved on from your employment and who, for whom there is either very little or no likelihood that you will rehire them to mitigate the effects of the ability to pay. Though I know the USCIS, especially since the January 2017 regulations, has said that even if the employer were to withdraw it, it won't impact the employee in terms of getting an H-1 extension or other benefits or porting the priority date, but it protects you as an employer from this whole ability to pay issue. And I would say the the memo Sheila is referring to basically says that if it's withdrawn after 180 days of its approval. So keep in mind that if you do want the employee to be able to extend their H-1B and it's after 180 days and then you withdraw it, it, it saves you as the employer to look at ability to pay. But then it also does pass on the benefit to the former employee that they could extend their H-1B. And H-1Bs. as an employer who's listening now who says, why do I care if somebody left my employment to help them? Why is that my focus instead of focusing on my business? It's a great question, and it's a perfectly valid and legitimate question. But in the future, if you actually, if the employee comes back and wants to work for you, but cannot because the H-1's expired or can't use the priority date, etc., it might help to sometimes have the employee join you back by keeping things in a good professional uh, place. I always believe in the win-win in life for everybody to come out ahead in life. And talking about that, the employer-employee relationship RFEs, as we talked about earlier, are somewhat similar to what are the H-1B RFEs, and they're becoming even more common. We're seeing with the PERM audits and with employers who engage in staff augmentation and or third-party placement, especially in the IT industry, that these RFEs are asking about the existence of a bona fide job offer, the employee-employee relationship, a clear statement regarding the details of the employment, as well as a request to evaluate the kind of business arrangement that makes the employment offer possible. So there's just a presumption that this may be hokey pokey or fraudulent or nebulous. So be careful that government is looking at everything under a magnifying glass in today's climate. Absolutely. Speaking of that, we have the RFE memo that came out. Mm -hmm. However, in practice, it, it turns out it may not be as bad, but it did certainly put us on notice that you want to make sure that you include everything that potentially is required everything that is required and anything that potentially can benefit the case uh, when you file each of your uh, filings and your petitions to make sure that you don't potentially get a denial without an RFE or a NOID. Um, uh, on September 12, 2018 there was also uh, a, uh, a Q&A where USS did clarify that the memo was not intended to penalize filers for innocent mistakes 
or misunderstandings, but they did state that if a form statute of regulation asks for a specific document, then it does need to be included, and they can deny it and most likely will deny it if it's not. And this doesn't really involve employers, but as an example, I did have a consult just the other day where uh, an innocent mistake was the family members were filing for their parents, their 485s, their green card, and they didn't include the affidavit of support. No RFE, no NOID, it was just denied. So it's very important to make sure that you do your due diligence and make sure you're working with a, a reputable attorney. So this was an employment-based, a family-based? It was basis. a family-based analysis. Wow. So, yes. But really, Still, the, that's scary. Yeah, yeah, the USCIS is really implementing this rule just basically so that employers don't file kind of these frivolous filings where you're just trying to get something into the government. You know, right. if you do take the steps to include, you know, everything that's required, as, as Jim was saying, then, you know, you won't be kind of caught in that um in that situation. Right. They use the term placeholders. They're right. really trying to avoid that. It is still unclear whether the USCIS officer is bound to evaluating the presence or absence of documents listed as initial required evidence in the regulations or whether they can substitute their judgment on a case-by-case -case basis to determine whether the initial evidence is missing, you know, whether or not they're going to give a denial or a request for evidence. Um, there were specific specific examples that were given in that teleconference. The I-864 happened, happened to be one of them if it's, if it's missing. But it's still unclear as for a lot of petitions, you know, what they would or not consider, you know, required initial evidence. Okay, so the good news in this is that it hasn't been as overwhelmingly used as was initially. Con the concern was in last fall, 2018 exactly. fall, but... But again, that was also also before all these requests for evidence are likely to come from this H-1B cap season. So we still have to wait to kind of see how it's going to be implemented. True. True. So another new thing or somewhat newish that uh, issue that many of you as employers may have been hearing from certainly your employees is this whole uh, where the foreign national employees are now tempted to downgrade their long approved I-140 petitions from EB-2 to EB-3 because EB-3 has now become more favorable this fiscal year so far and for a couple months in order to take advantage of the more favorable immigrant visa availability based on priority dates in the visa bulletin. Um, so other foreign nationals who are beneficiaries of multiple I-140 petitions let's say they had one previous one initially in EB-3, then they negotiated with the employer to get the EB-2, which is upgraded, are now trying to come back and try to downgrade it. But it's a double-edged sword. And Jim, I think, can explain a little bit about it. Yeah, sure. So um, the, the EB-2 to EB-3 downgrade, I think it's important for employers to realize uh, what it's going to require. So uh, you do include an I-140. You're basically checking a different box. But USCIS evaluates it as if it's the first time they're seeing it. So they're going to be reevaluating the foreign nationals eligibility for the position. So if you've got a case from a few years ago that where perhaps the education wasn't as vetted as it should have been, it may be vetted now because everything is being highly scrutinized. Um, it's also important to know that they're going to do an ability to pay calculation from the priority date of that underlying labor certification. So there are many more tax years of tax exactly. returns. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I was just going to mention, you know, we're talking about checking a box on the I-140 petition. This strategy involves, you know, almost reusing the labor certification. So you're not redoing 
you know, prevailing wage advertisements, you're essentially using a regulation which allows someone to file uh, a petition again, so long as originally an I-140 petition was filed within the validity of that labor certification. So it's a strategy we're using, but you, the employer, don't have to kind of redo the whole process. It's basically just refiling that I-140 petition. Right, right. It's also important to know you can't premium process with the initial filing because the, the file's not going to have the original labor certification, which allows you to do so. And also for, for those employees Sheila was talking about that may have multiple I-140 petitions and basically are kind of seeking to file, you know, with the EB-3, which may be, you know, considered a demotion from their previous EB-2 position, the intent of the employee and the employer does become relevant. You know, the employee is filing that I-485 for his or her green card based on the downgraded petition, but that job still has to be, you know, available to him. And that is a job that they have to intend um, intend to to work in. Um, in no way is it you know correct or legally defensible for the employee or the employer to go forward with the I four eight five on the basis of this you know downgraded petition at the time with a plan to interfile the EB two at a different time. Um, intent is really you know intent is really important. So you know you the employer and the employee are you know attesting under penalty of perjury that you uh, are moving forward with this petition and this is the position the employee is going to go in. So the third stage of the green card. So the first stage in a perm case, of course, is the perm. In the green card case, second is the I one forty petition, and the third is either the adjustment of status for eighty five or consular processing. CP. The consular processing, which is traditionally where the U.S. Department of State has accepted, you know, they, they, you file it with the, usually when the person is either abroad or there are certain members of the family that are abroad or it's based on a future job offer, the Department of State has accepted copies of tax filings and supporting schedules and W-2s for immigrant visa processing, both in the employment and family-based con- context. But yeah. the things have been changing. Yeah. So the National Visa Center now um, has uh, pretty much will only accept tax transcripts uh, instead of the copies of the tax filings. But in addition to that, even though you're providing tax transcripts, which is from the IRS directly, they're also asking for W-2s. Um, you know, it, it appears to be part of their fraud prevention tool um, with the, the administration's extreme vetting. And it's just one of the additional elements of scrutiny that you have to deal with now going through the process. Right. And, and just keep in mind that um, for most employment-based cases, this is not going to be an issue. It, it comes up in a certain sect of employment-based cases and mainly and mainly family-based cases, but it's just a good idea to, to keep in mind. Yeah. We always recommend, but those transcripts don't have the details of the amounts. It just says you've paid it in general, right? Most of them. It, it'll have each line of that 1040 uh, that the individual mm. included. Okay. Well, post-adjustment of status interview site visits off the sponsoring employers as well as future employers where the applicant may have ported pursuant to AC21, we're starting to see this. Although it's not as common or it's generally uncommon, we are. it is noted with increasing frequency that USCIS is conducting the administrative site visits to employers after the completion of an adjustment of status interview, this is Cor- all correct. So I would I'm gonna give you two two examples that I just had this last week. Um, one, I had an employer whose employee had his interview four months ago, and then the USCIS you know chose to have a site visit because they were in the same the same town to kind of verify information and labor certification, make sure that it's a bona fide job. Um, I also had another individual who happened to be living not in the same state as his employer. The officer mentioned that they'll be sending the 
employer a letter or email to confirm the job. So keep in mind when you are filing the I-485, the employer is typically signing the I-485 Supplement J confirming there's a job offer, but it seems to be that at some point, even after the interview, sometimes they're even send, sending out USCIS officers to verify that information. So. The site visits are very similar to H-1B and R-1 um, petitioner site visits where the FDNS officers from the Fraud Detection Unit of the USCIS are basically making an unannounced visit, you know, to make sure, one, that you're a viable business, mm -hmm. you know, that you're a business, you know, conducted in the U.S., and basically to confirm the information um, that's either, you know, with the initial filing or if it happens to be an AC-21 employer, you know, that information as well. And, okay. and generally, just to put it out there, um, if any of you end up having this happen to, uh, at your work sites or your place of employment, it's really advisable to talk to your attorney as soon as possible before making any responses. Makes perfect sense. And of course, here at the Muthi Law Firm, we have tons of experience with that. So, uh, you know, next up, we're going to talk briefly about the USCIS that is re-adjudicating even prior green card approvals during naturalization interviews. So if you as an employer are now fighting for your citizenship or any of your employees, it might be worthwhile understanding because in order to be eligible for citizenship or naturalization, a lawful permanent resident has to have been lawfully admitted to status for at least five years in most cases or three years of marriage married to a citizen and have been physically present in the U.S. for at least half of that time, which is two and a half years, and also you have good moral character and you have continuous residence and physical presence. So you have all kinds of what we call GMC, all kinds of issues, but it's becoming more and more common now to investigate further, Jessica. Right, and I was going to say what they're really focusing on is that you got, you were lawfully admitted to the U.S. So some of the typical questions they ask, you know, who is your green card sponsor? You know, what position were you sponsored in? How long did you work for them? after you got the green card. So that's important to keep in mind that they're asking about after you got the green card, did you actually work for either that original sponsor or if you happen to use AC21, that sponsor and how long, you know, did you stay with them after? And this canon does have, you know, the potential to have issues for, you know, the foreign national and, and potentially his or her family. And even the employer, because if there's derogatory information that prompted the, that prompts the denial of the citizenship case, Presumably, the USCIS could use that information even to investigate the employer or subject the employer to an administrative site visit or other immigration compliance checks or enforcement actions because, you know, they're like looking at this under the microscope. Everything's like a big red flag. So as you can see from the discussion between Jim, Jessica and myself, you know, we are touching upon changes we're focusing on the overall PERM green card, PERM I-140 and 485 slash consular processing process, but we're highlighting changes or things that we are noticing in the process that you as employers may want to be aware of. The other reason we thought that was important to have today's conference call was because, you know, we focus been focusing a lot over the last several months on H-1Bs and RFEs and, you know, investigations and employer investigations, and we thought that a lot of what you as employers do and for your employees is also the perm and the green card to retain your employees for the long haul and to sponsor them, even though for citizens of India, the green card process may take 10, 20 or 30 years for them to become green card holders. But that's something that you need to be aware of, the pros, the cons, the risks. Um, and of course, as you well know, we at the Murthy Law Firm have not just Jim McLaughlin and Jessica Beaver, but an entire team 
of very smart, sharp, qualified uh, team in the Perm Green Card Department, whose exclusive, almost exclusive focus is pretty much green cards, you know, paperwork and processing. So we observe trends and we monitor things and we advise and guide and mentor you as employers. So we hope you found today's discussion on the Perm Green Card and brief touch on, I guess, the citizenship updates connected with the green card helpful uh, for you, your HR team, as you process employees' green card cases through the PERM process. Uh, On behalf of Jim McLaughlin, Jessica Beaver, myself, Sheila Murthy, and the entire Murthy Law Firm team, we thank you for joining us this afternoon, and we look forward to continuing to help you and your business in this tough and ever-changing environment. Thank you. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.